Thank you, Sarah. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I, I have a theory about, you know, when we're all in heaven and we're standing in the company of Jesus, and, and I probably said this before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. I, I am in my 50s now, so I get the right to do that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I always wonder, you know, if you've ever been in the presence of greatness, you know, I, I always stumble for words. You never quite know what to say. So I'm just warning the artists, because what we're going to do is we're going to kick the artists out in front and say, say something, do something, and don't blow it. And they're going to have to play and say things like we just listen to, and hopefully the hymn writers can speak with that kind of eloquence. That's certainly what the king deserves. And um, I know he'll want to hear us all, but uh, I often think, boy, what a rich treasure we have in those hymns. And I hope that's an active part of your uh, devotional life. I encourage you to get a hymnal. And not all the hymns are great. I will contend that. But many of them are. And uh, very, very helpful. So Psalm 32, um, I have at the top of my psalm, the blessedness of forgiveness and of trusting God. How's that for a theme for a Sunday morning worship time? And uh, so we're going to look at that here um, together. I'm going to read it, and then we'll make some comments on it. You'll see here that this is a, a mass skill. Uh, we're not very sure what exactly these little indications mean at the top of uh, psalms. Um, but uh, evidently, in Hebrew, this means a skillful or a beautiful word, a beautiful song. There's, this is perhaps uh, identified as something particularly precious. Uh, uh, you'll see masculine used in other psalms, but it seems to perhaps identify this as something that's particularly precious, I would uh, deposit. Uh, we have the word selah used in this psalm several times. This is perhaps a, a pause, to, a musical pause, uh, to stop and really think about what just was said. And you'll see that throughout this psalm. So with that in our minds, verse number one, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For, night, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Think about that. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Think about that. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found... Surely in a, great, in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. We sang a few of those this morning. Let's think about that. 
Think about that. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Clarity, when it comes to finding true happiness, seems a corporate human quest, doesn't it? True happiness. A simple internet search yields close to a half a million hits. They range from www.anumo.com, and there's suggested 11 ways to find true happiness. www.herway.net, their thoughts on what is true happiness, and in parentheses, and the secrets to attain it. And www.health.com, their ideas of what is the true meaning of happiness. What's the true meaning of it? In some sites, you'll find the likes of Goldie Hawn and Woody Allen on the one hand, and Dale Carnegie and Buddha on the other hand, all offering, I suppose, respectable quotes about true happiness. You can find those at www.lifehack. In their list of 22 happy quotes about the true meaning of happiness. True happiness. In Old Testament biblical terms, true happiness is is the essential meaning of the words, how blessed. In our psalm, it is used two times. In the whole of the book of Psalms, the phrase is used well over 20 times. It is clear by those occurrences that true happiness is an effect, not a cause. It is the product of making God-honoring choices in critical areas of life. Let me give you a sampling from those occurrences. Uh, The areas include counsel, where you go for counsel. We're familiar with Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So where you're going for counsel uh, uh, affects happiness. Uh, The places of refuge you seek, whom you trust, the considerations that you make in your life. It includes the company you keep. It also includes your understanding of justice. Boy, that's important in the day and age in which we live. It includes what truly moves you to fear. It includes how in the world you decide your way. It includes what you truly observe and take note of in life and what you've chosen not to observe and take note of in life. It also uh, includes your view of your situation and the help that you seek. Along with these, our text, Psalm 32, teaches that the transformative nature of God's forgiveness sets us firmly 
on the path of true happiness. The transformative nature of God's forgiveness sets us firmly on the path of true happiness. You know, one could argue this morning that our text, this passage, Psalm 32, is the very fountainhead or watershed of true happiness. The land on one side of the watershed will head in one direction and path in terms of the ability to apprehend true happiness. And anything that lands on the other side of this watershed will impact and affect the way happiness is enjoyed and appreciated. Forgiveness. But this morning, with the psalmist, we want to ask a simple question. We're going to apply our minds to the question of why. Why in the world does God's forgiveness set us firmly on the path of true happiness? And I want to suggest that the psalmist gives us four reasons. I'm going to let you write them down. We may not get to all of them. The first one is because it changes God's view of me. The second reason the psalm gives us is because it changes my view of myself, which is critical if I'm to know true happiness. The psalmist then adds that it changes my strategies for help. We'll see that. And then finally, it changes my message to others, my ability to encourage and counsel others. So God's view of me, God's view of myself, the strategies for help that I seek, and what I share with others. So these are the four reasons why God's transformative forgiveness yields true happiness. So let's take, first of all, a look at this idea that God's forgiveness is transformative and leads to true happiness because it changes God's view of me. You see this in verses 1 and 2 of our psalm. You know, three words are used here. Uh, they're functionally synonyms, but they all come to the table of their synonymness, if I can use that word, with some different nuances, some different sort of discrete ideas that are important for us to consider. These three words, in effect, sort of incorporate the whole gamut of the miserable existence sin fosters in our lives. And the good news is, they're followed by three powerful, liberating truths that describe God's perspective. And it's God's perspective, can we say, friends, that ultimately matters. So the first couplet we have here is this. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression, forgiven. The word transgression here emphasizes this fact that my sin offends the personal being, the God of heaven. This carries with it the idea that sin is not just sort of uh, uh, done in the vacuum of myself and affects no one else. The word transgression teaches me that there is somebody that I have offended who has given me some very specific things that I should and should not do. And when I transgress, I offend the personal God of heaven. I offend him. Some of you may be familiar with the name Alexander McLaren. He's a commentator and a man who wrote from another uh, century uh, in the church. 
But he writes this, you do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as a breach of the constitution of your own nature. I can't believe I did that. I shouldn't have done that. Or even as a crime against your fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the crimson, blood-stained guiltiness of your sin. Remember, every time, deep crimson red, deep crimson red, deep crimson red, deep crimson red. Each one of our transgressions requires that somebody die violently. But you have not got to the bottom of the crimson, blood-stained guiltiness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. We're instructed in Psalm 51 when David says, against you and you only have I sinned. David penned Psalm 51. He obviously penned Psalm 32 in front of us this morning. That's a heavy truth. That's a heavy reality. But that heavy truth and reality is met by the word forgiven. Here, happiness is found in this amazing state. It's the state of forgiveness. My transgression, or blessed is the man or woman whose transgression is forgiven. The, the Hebrew word forgiven here means lifted off. It's been lifted off. If you're not familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I would highly encourage you getting that. Get, get an updated version that's kind of written in our English today. The book that can be a little bit difficult if you read it in the way it was originally written. But John Bunyan uh, carries well this idea of forgiven in this little excerpt. And I'm going to read it verbatim because he does such a good job. And uh, yeah, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress is an, an allegory of the Christian life. So he tells a story of what the Christian life is like. And in so doing, he does a great service to the church. Uh, but he writes this under the heading, The Cross. Now I saw in my dream that the highway which, up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side. It was a narrow way with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run. He had the burden of sin on his back, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back, that burden. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood the glorious cross. And a little below in the bottom, behind the cross was an empty tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came to the cross, his burden of transgression loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back, and it began to tumble and tumble, and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the empty tomb, and it dropped in and disappeared. It was gone. It was gone. Then was Christian glad and lightsome, he found true happiness. He found true happiness. And he said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow. He has given me life by his death. Then he stood still for a while to look and to wonder. You know, folks, Christians are filled with wonder. 
I hope you're a wonder-filled man or woman if you're a believer this morning. You just can't get over the cross and the empty tomb. But John Bunyan didn't write all that. That's just my interjection. Be filled with wonder, just like Christian was. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. It's a bittersweet moment. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee, peace, peace is now your state. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps of joy. He went on singing, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in until I came here. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from my back? Must here the strings be bound? It to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed empty tomb. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. True happiness. Christian found it at the cross. David speaks of it in Psalm 32. How blessed is the man or woman whose transgressions, the very personal offense against the God of the universe, is lifted off, and it's gone. What an amazing state. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. It is well with my sin, soul, O oh, my sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. The second couplet that we have here is sin and covered. Whose sin is covered? Sin here is a familiar term. The Hebrew concept of missing the mark. This has to do with not our relationship to God, but with our relationship to God's law, His holy standard. And we consistently and habitually miss the mark. Consistently and habitually miss the mark. It's the same nuance of the Greek word, hamartia, that we find in the New Testament. But the delight and the joy here is that our sin is what? It's covered. It's covered. This is an amazing theme. This theme brings us to the highest and holiest day in the nation of Israel, the Day of Atonement. And the high priest, with bells around his skirt and a rope tied to his ankle, would take the, the blood of the lamb that was shed in substitutionary fashion for the whole nation of Israel. And the, the priest would carry that not to the holy place, but into the holy of holies, where the grand ark of the covenant and the Shekinah glory cloud of God existed in its thickest form. And there, the ark of covenant, we're familiar with that. It was just a box. Inside the box was 
the mosaic wall written on the tablets, a staff that budded, some manna, and then there was a cover. And on that cover were embossed two seraphim. These angels were in gold were, were there. And, and, and in and around all of that was the Shekinah glory cloud of God. And the priest would take that blood and he would sprinkle it with a branch of hyssop onto that cover, that mercy seat. And the picture is a powerful one. Below is the broken law of God. Above is the holy God of heaven. And they exist together because of the mercy seat. And upon the seat, what energizes the mercy of God is the blood of his own son as represented in that lamb, that son who would come to shed his blood for the sins of the world, pictured in that powerful yearly annual time. The priest, trembling, went in to make atonement and sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. The Hebrew word for mercy seat has the idea of covering. The Greek word has the idea of satisfaction. So in, in this idea comes these two amazing truths from God's perspective. God is going to be merciful because he is satisfied by the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, for your sin and for mine. Your sin is covered. In New Testament terms, it's satisfied. God's wrath for you and for me. The third couplet that demonstrates how God's view of me has changed is in this idea, my iniquity is what? It's not imputed. Verse number two, how blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Iniquity, unimputed. Iniquity here is a, this is the term that really bites hard into the pride of man and woman and women. Transgression, highlighting the relationship that I have with the personal God of heaven. Sin, relationship to the law. And this, this idea of iniquity is, is the expose, if you will, of my relationship to myself against the contrast, or not the contrast, against the picture of the God of heaven. And it simply means twisted and crooked. And it's talking about our character. So the twisted and crooked reality of my character outside of Christ is not imputed against me. It's not imputed against me. This is what God does not do. Courtrooms on earth always impute twisted character against the defendant when it is clearly proven. At times, though, it too may grant the defendant a bit of mercy if they openly admit this reality. But the best they can do is get a lighter sentence. It will still go down on their record. It will be clear to all. But that's not true. Of the forgiveness that we find in the person of the God of heaven. He does not impute your twisted character. And you find forgiveness in the person of Jesus alone. And he grants full 
and final forgiveness. There's a lot that we could say here in relationship to this point. But it's unimputed. It's unimputed. In Romans chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, commentators remind us that of all that Paul could have said about David's sin, as he's building his, his, his tremendous treatise on the gospel, he picks these two verses, and, and, and he, he, these are the pillars upon which he develops the doctrine, justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. These are powerful, powerful truths for all humanity. For all humanity. We see here that uh, this reality gives us a, a whole new experience. Blessed is the man whose spirit is free from deceit. Whose spirit, there is no deceit. You know, outside of forgiveness... When there is no forgiveness, the Lord knows that the deceit, that deceit goes with the human spirit like peanut butter goes with jelly. Now, I just think they go real well together. You may not think peanut butter goes with jelly. I do. All I'm simply trying to say is the Lord knows that deceit, your ability to flatter yourself out from underneath the thumb of the law outside of Jesus Christ, outside of understanding what real forgiveness is, outside of true happiness, is stunningly amazing. You want to know how I know? Because that's true in my life. <laughs> it's stunning, and it's amazing. But forgiveness completely changes this whole reality. My spirit, as a result of the forgiveness that I enjoy in Christ, has the ability to be free from deceit. I no longer have to flatter myself. I can call sin, sin, and stop experiencing all the corruptive influence that sin creates in my life. I can enjoy freedom from self, Deception. This is true happiness. This is the path. This is amazing. You know, in Christ, in the forgiveness that we enjoy, that kind of flattery really is irrational. Flattery and self rationalization only occurs when there is a conscious understanding that there is potential punishment and wrath, I mean full and final wrath, for my sin. I don't have to do that when I'm in Christ and I enjoy forgiveness. I simply can confess it. We're going to see acknowledge it. Verse number five. What's our other word? Confess, acknowledge, uh, I acknowledge my sin to you. Oh, and not hide. That's a beautiful thing. I can actually do that and enjoy the amazing benefits that come from being able to look in the mirror of the Word of God, have it expose what I truly am, know that 
This has no bearing on my eternal reality that I enjoy forgiveness full and finally. So that forgiveness enables me to get back up again and move forward with Christ without being hampered by what? What else is we being forgiven? And, and, who, and who there is no deceit. In verse number 5, you see there, and you forgive the guilt of my sin. The guilt. I don't have to labor underneath the guilt of sin anymore. This is amazing. So we have these three couplets, and they're absolutely amazing. And as a result, they change the view of myself as it puts us on the path of true happiness. The first thing I realize is that my physical ailment has the possibility of a new source. There it is in verses 3 and 4. I, I always want to realize that now that I am in relationship to God as a result of his forgiveness, he sees me as a son or a daughter. And anyone who has a son or a daughter knows that when they're out in the middle of the street and there are trucks coming, we don't just sit there and watch our child get run over by the truck. What do we do? We go out and we grab up our child and we run him to safety and we say, don't do that anymore! Or something hopefully kind that really makes the point. I got spanked. I don't know what your views are. When I said bad things, I got soap in my mouth. These were just things we did, and they were helpful. Um, but those proved one reality. The next door neighbor's mom and dad didn't do that. My mom and dad did. Because they loved me. Because they were in a relationship with me. I didn't fear that, you know, I was never going to be a Hobie again, or, oh, my word, you know. No, no, it was a relational reality. Um, one of the ways that God chastises us, David felt this, is he had that weight on him, that literal weight of knowing that he was out of fellowship with his father. That's a heavy weight. It's one thing to be out of fellowship with your earthly father, my friends. It is an infinitely more heavy weight when you're out of fellowship with the God of heaven and his son Jesus. Can we say that? And we do feel that, and it can affect us physiologically. We already mentioned self-flattery is replaced by biblical self-assessment. We acknowledge our sin, we stop hiding our iniquity, and we confess our transgression. Instead of wallowing in our guilt, we are convinced that God has forgiven that guilt. Yes, even the guilt. The guilt. The guilt. A few things to note. Verse 5, it's the longest verse in the psalm in Hebrew. If psalm 32 is the heart of true happiness, then verse 5 is the heart of the psalm of, 32, of, of chapter 32. Confession is made only to the Lord. This is not an, a religious system. We have to jump through hoops. Confession includes the full gamut. The exact three words used in verse 1 for sin are used again in verse 5 in the context of confession. The full gamut. God's people can confess the full gamut of their offense before God. Disciples, Psalm 32.5 is a critical verse. For our disciples and you yourself to understand. We're going to jump to our conclusion.
I already gave you the other two points. You could look at what new strategies there are for help, how that leads to happiness, how it changes our message to others. We actually have something worthy of contributing. You know, the, 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 the longing to be significant these days is so powerful, and we want to do something. Well, here it is. You can actually do something as it changes and shapes your message to this lost and dying world. So it is clear now why the transformative nature of God's forgiveness sets us firmly on the path to true happiness. It changes God's view of us. It changes our view of ourselves. It changes my strategies for help, and it completely changes my message to others. What is particularly encouraging about this psalm is that unlike Psalm 1, where true happiness is found, how blessed, in the context of obedience... How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. This psalm, this psalm true ha gives us the truth that true happiness is found in the context of our sin and failure. That's to be noted. There's abundant hope in this psalm for the likes of you and me. Are you truly happy this morning? Do you know the forgiveness God offers in the person of Jesus Christ. Biblical Christianity is the only truth when it comes to, uh, can I use the word metaphysical ideas, where full and final forgiveness is given at the very beginning of the spiritual life. It's not held to some indiscriminate end when you never really know if you got it. And it's all up to you on how you grit for it. You hope you grit enough and you never know. No. We sung of the love of God. It's amazing. It settles that question at the very beginning of our spiritual life. So all that's left is relational realities. That's it. That's all that's left. All that's left you know, is, is, you know, when, when, when I was born as a Hobie, came out of my mother's womb, all that was left. No more questions about if I was going to exist, if I was going to, you know, be cared for, all that good stuff. All that was off the... The only thing that was left for my parents was for me to become a functioning adult. <laughs> you know? And that's all I, you know, we worked on together. And uh, that's what God's working on you to make you a functioning adult in Christ uh, as you enjoy the true path to happiness. We would encourage those of you who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and maybe this idea of full and final forgiveness is something that's very foreign to you. You're a very religious person. Man-made religion is a accumulation of steps that somehow makes you acceptable to God. The Bible completely eviscerates that concept. And in the, con and, and in the idea of substitution, Jesus, God's Son, came and bore the wrath for your sin when he died on the cross at Calvary, when he shed his blood, that which was pictured, we talked about in the Day of Atonement in national Israel. Jesus shed his blood. He paid the penalty. Your sin and the wrath that it creates in God has completely been satisfied. 
It's a done deal. You need to stop trying. You need to set aside your intellectual pride, perhaps. You need to set aside your, your own moral ideas that somehow you're kind of good enough. God demands absolute perfection. Just read the Ten Commandments. I'm sure there's one there that you have kind of skewed. <laughs> yeah, I've skewed lots. So let's not pursue that any longer. Let's give up that. That's ridiculous. That's the height of irrationality and the height of insanity, particularly when there's a God of heaven bidding you to come. God of heaven who has given his own son to die for you. How in the world, what great offense to somehow try to substitute something else for that. May God deliver us from that. May we receive the joy of forgiveness found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and know, and know the true happiness that comes from the confidence of knowing that your transgression is forgiven, your sin is covered, and your twisted character, by the way, we're not broken, we're twisted, never forget that. <laughs> your twisted character will not be imputed against you, period, infinitely and eternally. For those of us who are believers, let's get up. Let's stop allowing guilt. Let's stop being the stooge for guilt. Let's stop being the stooge for sin. Let's stop it. And let's acknowledge, not hide, and confess it. And let's get back on the path and enjoying the true happiness that God has designed us to enjoy. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the richness of this morning. Lord Jesus, you are stunningly amazing in what you've done. And we are, uh, as a company of believers, just thrilled this morning uh, that you have given us uh, the pathway to true happiness. You told us, you said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. This yoke is the enjoyment of full and final forgiveness and the joy of becoming like the Lord Jesus. We have that ability now, and you're pursuing that. And we confess, we sin, and we, our, our character is still twisted. We don't have... The, the, the old nature removed from us. You know, we still have got that along with the new. And, and so we still have that twisted ugliness. And, and you have to continue to confront us, continue to teach us what it means to be mature, to be built up in Christ, and to be the lovers, learners, and worshipers you've called us to be. So help us to embrace the process and to find true happiness here. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.